I want to share this morning a message that I actually um, preached many years ago at another church, and uh, I spent the week kind of looking at it and reworking it a little bit and thinking about it. And you see the title, War and Peace. You may have read the Leo Tolstoy novel uh, in high school or college. And it, uh, I believe the novel is about 1,300 pages long, so uh, we will not be spending that much time this morning. You can be thankful. Uh, you see the uh, headline from the war ending in Europe in the 1940s, the Nazis surrender unconditionally, uh, World War II. World War II is... Uh, the turning point of World War II was, was celebrated a few days ago. On Thursday, the world uh, celebrated and remember, remembered uh, D-Day, the 75th anniversary of D-Day, June 6, 1944, when the Allied forces uh, invaded the continent of Europe. And it was, again, considered a turning point in the war that, that uh, Hitler and his minions had... Uh, up, up till this time really had the aggression and taken over much of Europe, Africa, parts of Russia, I think, that kind of thing. And so the, so the invasion of Europe by, by the Allied forces uh, was a big point where the war finally had a chance of being won uh, by the Allies, and, and it lasted another year, a little bit less than a year after that. And so war is something that has always been with us. It really. If you think about it, war, if you, if you break war down to any conflict between one person and another, we've sort of had it <laughs> since Cain and Abel. War and violence and, and that type of conflict has always been with us. And it's, it's an interesting topic, uh, but it's something that I think is very important. And what I'm really going to be doing today is, is not so much getting into the intricacies of of war, why war, uh, you know, whether wars are justified, whatever. Uh, I'm really going to be using the concepts of war and peace, as I always do, as a launching point to spiritual realities. And some of those realities, if you've been with me the last year or so, uh, you will have heard uh, at different times. Uh, but one of the one of the uh, points of teaching somebody is often to take common themes that people need to know and repackaging them and, and giving them different ways to think about it. So you'll, you'll see a little bit of repetition from the last year. But the, the concept of war from a, from a biblical standpoint isn't always easy to, to grasp or understand. If I'm to take the, the whole counsel of God, the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, all coming from God, it's, it's not so easy to understand uh, we see in the Old Testament what certainly seems like uh, divine appointments to go to war. Uh, we see in the book of Revelation uh, certainly spiritual warfare going on in the, in the end times. Uh, and then we have the New Testament where there's certainly conflict. Jesus was someone who didn't avoid conflict. But at the same time, we, he is famous for being a person of peace in many ways. Uh, he says, turn the other cheek, all that kind of thing. So, so if I'm, to, I'm a New Testament Christian, it's, it's not always easy to really grasp how I should understand war. Uh, one thing I, I think is important to know, though, is that war, until Jesus comes back, until we're, we've finished and gone through that book of Revelation, is always going to be a reality. It's always going to be existing. So whether I go to war, whether I approve of war or what, it, that fallenness, that brokenness, on all levels, not just warfare, but human conflict, conflict in general, is always going to exist until Jesus comes back 
and restores all things. And so most of us, I would say, uh, if I were to do a survey, would be people who want peace. All of us want peace for the most part, right? We don't want conflict. We certainly don't want violence. And so it's, it's important to understand that the reality of war or the reality of conflict is something that we shouldn't ignore. And in the name of peace, we shouldn't hide our heads in the sand to live in denial that any type of conflict exists. And there are biblical reasons for that. So again, I'm not really talking about warfare, you know, that kind of thing. I'm talking about the issue of fallenness, the issue of conflict, the fact that the world is a world of trouble. We don't want to be in denial of those things. We don't want, in the name of peace, to ignore the existence or the ramifications of conflict. It is possible if we do that too often that we can live in a false peace. We can live in a false peace. We want peace so badly that we ignore the conflict around us and there's no actual true or lasting peace that we receive because we're kind of in denial of the conflict. We're not truly resolving it. And so the peace that we're living in isn't a really a true peace. It's a false peace. We can see this in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet, he lived in a time of warfare, of exile uh, to Babylon. And the, preceding this passage, there is a prophet uh, in, the, in the land that, that tells people that the wars are going to be ended, that the, that the punishment of Babylon, the exile, all this stuff is going to end. And Jeremiah responds. He says, may the Lord confirm your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house, they were in Babylon, and all the exiles, meaning the return of, of the Israelites to Jerusalem. May this be true, right? From Babylon to this place. Yet here, now the word which I'm about to speak to you in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people, the prophets who were before me and before you from ancient times prophesied against many lands and against great kingdoms of war and of a calamity and of pestilence. The prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, then that prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. Now, my position on this, the way I understand this, is that this, this prophet who was prophesying peace was probably prophesying a false peace. <laughs> so if that's the case, then the way I take his, Jeremiah's words is, look, hey, I'm all for it. If, if this Babylon exile stuff's gonna end sooner than we think it is, great. And you will be shown to be a true prophet. But I think Jeremiah, being a man of God, knows that that's not true. <laughs> that this guy is prophesying a peace that really doesn't exist. They were still in a place of conflict in a place of war. Elsewhere in Jeremiah, we see this. He says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. So here is an example of people who wanted peace so badly, they were wanting to live in this denial, this, this illusion that peace existed, where it didn't exist. And too often when we do that, that can often lead to even greater conflict or suffering because we're not really focusing or acknowledging the conflict as it exists. 
So it is possible to achieve peace in our lives by recognizing the existence of conflict, by not living in denial, right? We, we recognize it's possible in different places to recognize conflict as a pathway to peace. Where do I get that? A famous verse in Romans chapter 8. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. So there's lots of applications to this verse. You've heard me mention it before. How does it apply to this? God can use anything in our world, even something like war or conflict, to achieve his eternal purposes. Does it mean that God causes these things? We can get into that debate. But God can use conflict. God can use war to achieve his eternal purposes. So our job is to, as much as possible, recognize our adversity as divine opportunity. What you and I most often see as trouble in our lives, God sees as opportunity. Why? Because God is sovereign. He is able to use anything. And so what you and I might see as trouble, conflict, hopelessness, God sees as opportunity. So we must see how God can turn the wars that you and I wage into opportunities for peace. Now you might be saying, the wars we wage, the wars I wage. <laughs> you know, there are probably a few combat veterans in the room, but most of us have not gone to war, so what in the world am I talking about? In this fallen world, you and I can wage war or we can live in conflict with God, with ourselves, and with others. So we may not be going overseas and shooting a gun, but the idea of conflict or war or trouble, we do battle on those battlefronts with God, with ourselves, and with others. So what I want to do this morning is touch on those three areas of, of warfare, those three battlefronts, and give you three strategies for true and lasting peace. Number one, trust in his faithfulness, and your war with doubt will become an opportunity for peace with God himself. Trust in his faithfulness, and your war with doubt will become an opportunity for peace with God himself. We go to Romans 4, another often used passage, talks about Abraham. It says, without weakening in his faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. So we have this thing credited as righteousness. We have the, a similar term, justification by faith. It goes on in Romans 5. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that, that, that credit that, that Abraham received, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So how do we have peace? How did Abraham arrive at such a confident level of faith in God's promise? Well, it's not so much exculpated in in Romans 4, some of it is, but if you look at the the story of Abraham, you can see that on on his journey, in Sarah's journey to this place of confidence and faith in God, they certainly struggled with doubt. (laughs) It wasn't that they never had any doubt. We see the passages about the laughter and about Hagar and all those things where where they they were in many ways doubtful of God's promise, but eventually they came to the place to trusting in God. So I want to give a definition of war. There are different definitions, but this applies to this morning. War is a conflict where the strengths and the weaknesses of each side are exposed so that one side eventually conquers, the other side surrenders, resulting in peace. War is a conflict where the strengths and weaknesses of each side are exposed so that one side eventually conquers, the other side surrenders, resulting in peace. Now, that peace that results is not always a great peace. You know, there, there have been wars that have ended in horrible things, but still, the end of war is usually peace, okay? Sometimes it could be positive, sometimes negative. But you see where it's underlined. The strengths and the weaknesses of each side are exposed. Those strengths and weaknesses are not usually, they don't usually show up until you enter into the conflict, okay? So if we ignore our war with doubt, we will never truly trust in God's faithfulness. What do I mean by that? Our weakness will never truly be exposed. God's strength will never truly be exposed. Now we go back to 419. It says, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Now it's interesting that, that you know, if you know anything about the Bible, the translations, there's a grouping of translations, usually the King James, the New King James, I think the Revised Standard, that come from a different set of Greek texts. Generally, they're pretty much the same as everything, but, but there are some differences. And here's one difference in this verse in the King James that many people have read. It says he did not consider his own body. Meaning, his faith, the strength of his faith was by ignoring that his body was as good as dead. Why is that important? I think that I've witnessed in my life and in the life and culture of churches where our idea of faith is ignoring the negative, (laughs) ignoring our doubt, putting it to the side. I have to block it out in order to really trust in God. Now, there's something to that. Sometimes we need that that level of focus and commitment and walking into the unseen. But in this case, we see that Abraham's faith was strengthened while at the same time totally realizing that his body was as good as dead. He did not deny that Sarah's womb was dead. In that, his weakness was exposed. His weakness was exposed. And we see some examples of doubt, but I know that if I were in their shoes... You know, however long it was between promise and fulfillment, I would have spent a lot of time doubting. (laughs) So, what is the difference? The difference is when my weakness is exposed by wrestling with doubt, by not ignoring it, it doesn't have to be a detriment. If I submit myself to God, it can become an opportunity for trust, right? Because the more my weakness is exposed, the more I realize how powerless I am. 
the more I want to trust in God's power to come through. So what did Abraham fundamentally trust in? What did he have faith in? Ultimately, I would say, Abraham had faith in God's faithfulness. <laughs> right? He knew he had no possibility of bringing a child into the world on, on his own. But he trusted in God's promise. He trusted in his character. And I really don't believe that he would have gotten to that place had he ignored his circumstances. Had he ignored the doubt that he was wrestling with, maybe that Sarah was wrestling with. We see that, that he uh, actually considered it. So I, and I will also add that in the past, when I, when I worked this a long time ago, I did do some research on the, you know, you can go, go to the Greek texts and the Hebrew texts to, to make your best determination, like if it's a difference of a word or something, uh, what you believe the original text said. And I did a fair amount of study on this, and I do believe that, that the version you see here, that he did consider his own body as good as dead, uh, is the original. So you can make your own study of that, but I, th I do think it's important. Martin Luther. John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, Mother Teresa. These are all what many people, evangelicals, would consider to be champions of faith. Champions of faith, bedrocks of faith in the modern Christian church over the last several hundred years. But you want to know something else that they all had in common? Every one of them struggled with doubt. Every one of them struggled with doubt. You can look up their own writings. You know, Martin Luther is especially famous for, for his struggles with doubt before he realized God's grace and, and the doctrine of justification by faith. Mother Teresa, in what some of her recently revealed writings, showed that despite all the good that she did, all the positive and faithful sayings that she had, she struggled with doubt. Not only did they struggle with doubt, they also affirmed doubt as a pathway to trusting in God, <laughs> right? They didn't, they didn't live with their heads in the sand to the conflict and the struggle that you and I have with doubt. They saw it as a conduit, that their weakness was exposed and therefore they could turn to God's strength in a way that they wouldn't have if they were constantly living in denial that they had doubts. Trust in his faithfulness and your war with doubt will become an opportunity for peace with God himself. Number two, embrace God's grace, and your war with the flesh will become an opportunity for peace with yourself. Romans 5, this is what follows Romans 4. So we see Abraham's justified by faith, right? We see that it was credited to his righteousness, so he has peace. So we're, we're kind of linking these two here. Because of what Abraham did, right, he trusted in God despite his circumstances, he was justified by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And what you're going to see in 1, 2, 3, that these are all interconnected. You've got to start with 1 in order to have 2. You've got to have 2 in order to have 3. So if I don't start with my life have, acknowledging and living in the peace that I have with God, I can't go to number two. I'm not really going to see God's grace for what it is. It says, through him, we have also attained access by faith into this grace 
with which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is the foundation that we live in, in having peace with God. But again, we don't get there unless we expose our doubt. But it leads to number two. I can understand and embrace God's grace. And this has an effect on the war that I have with my flesh. It goes on, it says, not only that, right? We could leave, it, we could leave the first passage and say it's all good. It says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Because of the peace that we have with God, because of the grace, we can rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that the suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I have peace with God. I rest in God's grace. So you might say, well, that should lead to just a a perfectly happy life where there's no problems anymore. No. (laughs) That leads to a place where I can engage in my sufferings. I can not ignore my consequence, the consequences of, of conflict in my life, the war that I place on my flesh, because adversity God can use for his eternal purposes, right? It produces character, hope. It builds on itself. I'm, not, I'm still not ignoring the conflict. I'm still not ignoring the struggle. We see this, of course, in Romans chapter 7. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, (laughs) that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want, that's what I keep on doing. This is in the same letter, (laughs) right? He talks about this hope and all this stuff. But he's not ignoring the warfare that he has with his flesh. He says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? <laughs> this is a heavy passage, right? But, but Paul is not ignoring the conflict. He's entering into the conflict that he has with his flesh. He's being fully immersed in it to the place, in this case, of hopelessness. (laughs) He is not ignoring the fact that his body is as good as dead. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And then we have the answer, of course, in Romans 8. And then we'll get to that in a second. But if we ignore our war with the flesh, we will never truly seek God's strength and identity. We'll be living in a false peace. We won't have true peace with God. We won't have true peace with ourselves. An example is 2 Timothy chapter 3. Men will be lovers of self, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Hypocrisy. (laughs) Hypocrisy, right? We want peace with God. We want it so bad but then we ignore our doubts. We want peace within ourselves. We want it so bad. That's that's who we're supposed to be as Christians. But when we live in denial of that struggle, it only leads to hypocrisy. (laughs) Holding the form of godliness, but not truly walking and growing in God. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. 
My power is made perfect, how? In weakness. I enter into the struggle. I do not ignore the struggle. The warfare I have with my flesh that we see played out in Romans 7 exposes my weakness. And it also exposes God's strength. Where do we get Christ's power? Through our weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The human instinct is to, is to live in denial, to act like it's all okay. All right? God, Paul is boasting in his weakness so that he actually can have true power in his life, so he can actually walk with peace in who he is as a Christian. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If you're like me, I struggle with my identity. <laughs> I struggle with the challenge of trying to make myself whole, of trying to do what I want to do, what my spirit says to do, what God wants me to do. I struggle with that, such that I feel eternally broken, <laughs> right? My identity is broken. And I think in some sense, theologically, that's true. Our identities are broken until we can have a new identity. If we acknowledge the weakness we have in our flesh, we are going to have a lot more motivation to embrace the grace of God and the identity of Christ in our lives. We give God our sin. <laughs> we give Jesus our hopelessness. And what do we receive? His righteousness. We receive peace within ourselves. That's what he accomplished on the cross. And I would say that's a pretty good trade-off. <laughs> I give you all the bad stuff, Jesus, and you give me all the good stuff. I can live with that. Number three, dress up in God's love and your war with self-interest will become an opportunity for peace with others. James 4 says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that wage war within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. <laughs> so where does conflict come from on the human level? Most of the time, it comes from our self-interest. <laughs> I'm in relationship with people, but who, who do I really care about? Me. That shows up in my thinking, my behavior, etc. That's a conflict that we have certainly even as Christians. And if we ignore that, it becomes a problem. I don't know if you're, you're like me, but perhaps you have heard about or you personally have knowledge of a married couple that has been married for 20, 30, 40 years. And as far as you can tell, they're certainly one of the happiest couples you've ever met. They always have a smile on their face. They show up for church. They participate, their community etc., etc. Their kids are gone to school, and they grow up married 30, 40 years. And at the end of that 40 years or whatever, you hear that they've gotten a divorce. And you go, how is that possible? <laughs> how is that possible? They were so happy. They were a model of marriage. How is that possible? Now, there are lots of reasons that people get divorced, okay? 
But one of the reasons in my study of scripture and my study of marriage is the avoidance of conflict. The avoidance of the war that you and I place or have in our lives with self-interest. People don't like conflict. They're peacemakers. They want peace. And so maybe even behind closed doors, their house is very peaceful. Why? Because they don't want to get into it. They avoid conflict. (laughs) But what happens? That independence festers, right? And so they're basically two independent people living under the same roof for years. And then when the kids are gone, they finally go, yeah, what's, what's the point of being together? Now, one thing I want to qualify in the definition I gave you of war, right? War is a conflict where, where weakness is exposed, strength is exposed, so one conquers, one surrenders. If we use that definition in the human context, that's where we get into trouble, right? If I'm always trying to produce my life and my marriage or my family, my kids, my close relationships, where I'm right and you're wrong, where my way is, it's my way or the highway, and it's always this back and forth between conquering and surrendering. Again, there's brokenness in that. Some people avoid it altogether. But the way this applies to, to our human relationships is this. The conflict that a husband or wife or parent, child or whatever, this marriage is just an example, the conflict that is occurring is a warfare of self-interest. But the weakness in this case is between both parties, <laughs> right? The weakness, like in the marriage here, is between both parties. There's not one person who's stronger, or, you know, we all do better or worse at different times and we can support each other. But whenever we are not walking in unity under God in any kind of relationship, both sides are the weak ones. <laughs> and who's the strong one? God. God's the strong one. And that's what we have to realize when it comes to walking in unity, in marriage, family, friendships, church. We're both weak. <laughs> and we both need to acknowledge the war that we, we wage with our self-interest. If we acknowledge that, then we will what? Rely on God's strength. We will go to God together saying, God, we are both messed up. So whatever the solution is to this particular issue, we need you. We need you. Dress up in God's love and your war with self-interest will become an opportunity for peace with others. What do I mean by dress up? I'll get to that in a second. If we ignore our war with self-interest, we can never truly love others in the way that we're meant to. We might have a peaceful household, a peaceful relationship, but it's a false peace. <laughs> All right? We have to negotiate our differences. That's how you, that's how you walk in unity. We have to enter into the place where we understand that we are weak and God is strong. That's the only way that you and I can walk in unity. But we will never do that if we ignore the fact that we're out for our own. (laughs) Right? That our fundamental instinct, even as Christians, is still to choose our own way. And so we get to the dress up part here in Colossians 3. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Clothe yourselves. Dress up in compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
If I'm in denial of the war that I wage with self-interest, how am I ever going to get to the place where I need to ask for forgiveness or receive forgiveness? <laughs> I'm living in a false peace, so I don't even get to that place. But that's, what, that's how relationships are supposed to work, aren't they? That's how we walk in unity. We all mess up. We're all weak. But I, don't, I won't get there unless I acknowledge my war with self-interest. So clothe yourselves in these things. Here's what lets me off the hook a little bit. If I'm dressing up for a church because I, I want to, don't have to, but if I'm dressing up for a job interview, if I'm dressing up for maybe a wedding or a funeral, it's possible I'm doing that because I want to impress other people, that kind of thing. But it's also, if you're like me, you're dressing up because you respect the occasion and you respect the people, right? You go to a job interview, you want the job, but you're respecting the occasion. You go to a wedding, you dress up because you want to honor the bride and the groom. So I can dress up in God's love and not have it be a fake thing. I can take on God's identity, right? And you see how this, this, this plays. If I don't have peace with God, peace with myself, I'm never going to even get to the place where I can do this. But by dressing up in God's characteristics, his compassion, his kindness, I'm not being fake. I'm simply putting on the clothes of God in order to bless others. And that's how we can resolve our war with self-interest. But I'm not going to go there unless I acknowledge that I have self-interest. <laughs> it says in 2 Corinthians 5, the love of Christ controls us. It compels us. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Again, we get back to the cross. We get back to the cross. I have peace with God because I've acknowledged the doubt in my life. I have peace with myself because I'm not avoiding the war I face with my flesh. And I have peace with others because I realize that I have self-interest in my life and I'm never going to overcome that weakness unless I put on God, <laughs> unless I put on his strength, and then I can have peace with others. Christ has won for us an eternal peace, a lasting peace, a true peace, both in the here and now, if we walk through these steps, but also eternally. He says in John 16, these things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble. <laughs> you will have trouble. You will have war. You will have conflict. But be of good courage, because I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we mourn a world that has fallen. We mourn the brokenness that we have with you, the brokenness that exists in our own lives, and the brokenness that we have with others. Lord, I'm so grateful that we have the word of God in the testimony of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to show us that peace is possible, that peace is possible, that we don't have to be in denial, we don't have to act like everything's okay, 
We don't have to live in a false peace, but we can engage in the warfare. We can acknowledge its existence and our weakness to overcome because we know that you have a plan, that you are sovereign over all creation, and that you can use everything, including our weakness, including the conflict that we live in, to bring about restoration, joy, and peace. Lord, I'm so grateful for this, and I ask that you touch every life this morning in whatever conflicts they're dealing with, and that you give them hope that peace is possible. I pray for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. And I'll leave you with Jesus' words. Peace, I leave you. My peace, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid.